Lord. If you have your Bible, turn to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6, I'm preaching in our pastor's stead. And in the middle of his series, going through the book of Nehemiah. And he's been through the first five chapters already. And he's done a phenomenal job. This has been tremendous preaching from this book of the Bible. And I found it only fitting to continue in this series. Glad he let me do it. Because I feel like our church is being helped from it. We're going to cover the majority of the chapter in our message today. But to start, let's just read the first four verses of Nehemiah chapter 6. Now it came to pass, when Samballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arabian, the rest of our enemies, <coughs> heard that I had builded the wall, and that there was no breach left therein, though at the time I had not set up the doors upon the gates, that Samballat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of... Oh no. See what I did there? Some of you need to wake up, because that was good. But they thought to do me mischief. And I sent messengers unto them, saying, I am doing a great work, I love this, so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? Yet they sent unto me four times, four times after this sort. And I answered them after the same manner. The title of the message is Persistence in Resistance. From September of 1940 to May of 1941, it seemed like Nazi Germany would roll up civilization like a cheap piece of carpet. I began to read about it this past week, and I found out that the Germans were bombing England at one point for 76 straight days. They said 1,500 German planes crossed the English Channel daily to drop what the author called the death load on the city. 43,000 British civilians were killed, 139,000 were wounded. The city of London alone, 30,000 people died, and 70,000 buildings were totally destroyed. Fires raged amidst all the rubble, and citizens of, of London hid in cellars as the nightly air raid sirens echoed throughout the once strong and, and stately city. Through all of this, the weight of his beloved country, rested upon the slump shoulders, the, the man said, the author of his biography, of Sir Winston Churchill. When many were buckling beneath the strain and even suggesting a parley with Hitler, Winston Churchill strode into Parliament and he said these words, listen closely, we shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. I love that. That inspires me. Many said and, and believed that it was Churchill's persistence that saved the civilized world and Many even say that more is owed to this man than any other man of the century. We've been studying a leader just like Winston Churchill. A leader that was a man of persistence, of course, named Nehemiah. In chapter 1, Pastor taught us that God stirred Nehemiah's heart to go back uh, to Jerusalem. He was serving currently under the king of Persia, and God stirred him to go and help 
the Israelites rebuild the wall in the capital city and even help restore the worship in Israel. But from the very beginning of the restoration project, Nehemiah and his crew faced one opposition after another, one attack after another. And it seemed the attacks were being led consistently by three political leaders, likely regional governors, Samballot, Tobiah, and Geshem. In chapter 2, when they heard that Nehemiah was, what, 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 was leading this project in the capital city, it angered them. They, they, they tried to stop the project through laughing at Nehemiah and scorning him and mocking him. That didn't work. In chapter 4, they tried to stop the project by literally forming an army to attack Nehemiah and his crew. But that didn't work. They persisted through it all. And with a sword in one hand and a shovel in the other, they built the entire wall near to completion by the time we get to chapter 6. The only thing they hadn't done yet was finish the gates. Samballat, Tobiah, and Geshem understood at that point that this wall is almost done. We only have time for one more assault. And they planned their attack not to the army at large, but focused primarily on Nehemiah himself. Believing that if they can derail the leader, if they can destroy the leader, they can destroy the project. And being inspired by God, after it's all said and done, Nehemiah penned chapter 6 to write about the details of this assault. Why would he do that? Why was this God's choice for Nehemiah chapter 6? Why are we preaching from these details today? Because I believe it applies specifically to the spiritual warfare of the believer today. Listen to me, church. Like Nehemiah, every child of God is called to do the work of the Lord. You may be a student, you may be a teacher, you may be a nurse a businessman or businesswoman, you may be a stay-at-home mom, you may be a first responder or any number of other things, but you should not be mistaken. If you are doing the will of the Lord for your life, you are doing the work of the Lord for your life. Nehemiah's building of these walls wasn't preaching the gospel necessarily. God's call in his life was to restore the city so that ultimately the worship could be restored. But it was still a work that God called him to do. And because God called him to do it, it was a great work, Nehemiah said. And you might not stand behind a pulpit ever. You might not teach a kid in children's church ever. You might never go to a faraway land as a missionary ever. But if you're doing the will of God for your life wherever and whatever that may be, you are called by God to do a great work for him. And if it's a great work for God, you better believe it's going to be attacked by the evil one. So the question of the text is twofold. How do we prepare for these attacks if we know that they're coming? How do we get ready for them? Question number one. The text also asks this question and answers this question. How do we stand against them? The answer is basically twofold. Nehemiah writes and he chronicles the way the enemy attacked him because in the same exact way the enemy attacks us. So, so we ought to prepare for the attack by being familiar with the enemy's tactics. How do we stand against it? The same way Nehemiah did. You resist. The book of James says if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. I believe that's the truth. But it's not just resisting once. We're going to see it's over and over and over. In fact, I've got to tell you, the life of the Christian is a life of resistance. Persisting in resistance. Three tactics to study 
and three strategies of resistance for each. Tactic number one, write this down, distraction through allurement. Distraction through allurement. We read in the first two verses that these three men tried to lure Nehemiah away from his project. And the place they were calling to, I mean, just the name itself sounds bad. Oh, no. But the location of the place is what tipped Nehemiah off because it was about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It was near the border of Samaria. Most importantly, it was Sam Ballot's, one of the enemy's, home province. So Nehemiah knew, they're not luring me away for some type of peace treaty. They're trying to put me on their turf so they can assassinate me. And notice the language they used in verse 2. Come. The enemy said, hey, Nehemiah, come. Let us meet together. You know why that strikes me this morning? Because that's the same word that Solomon explained to Rehoboam that his enemies would use. Proverbs chapter 1, if you've been here on study nights, you'll remember our study. Look at this verse in Proverbs. Put it up there, Brother Dustin. Um, skip that next verse. Skip that. There we go. My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. If they say, what's the next word? Come with us. This is the language that our enemy uses. He likes to go to young people when they're vulnerable. He likes to go to young people when they're simple-minded and, and they're easily swayed to either be wise or foolish. And they, they, they rely more on the counsel of their peers than they do their parents and their pastor. That's when the devil will attack you and he'll, he'll use that language. Hey, why don't you come? Come over here. Why don't you try alcohol for the first time? Why don't you try a drug for the first time? And I'm not trying to hit on the two buttons, but I'm just sick and tired of having to deal with adults who can't give up the drink. You know where it started? Generally in high school or in college. It's the first drink that leads to drinks after that. And so I don't shy away at all from telling young people, stay away from the drink. Drink lemonade, drink Gatorade, drink water. There's good alternatives. He'll say to the discouraged church member in here, hey, hey come, why don't, why don't you leave church for a while? You, you feel bad when you go and you feel worse when you leave. Just get away from there for a while. He'll say to the lonely person in here, hey, come to this party with these people who know how to have real fun and they won't judge you. You'll never feel like you're all alone with them. He'll say to the spouse whose marriage is struggling today, hey, come, I, I've got someone at work that'll actually appreciate you. They'll listen to you. They won't take you for granted. They'll respect you. He'll say to the one who's struggling financially, hey, hey, come over here, steal a few dollars from the workplace. Exaggerate the numbers on the time clock a little. Hey, do what you have to do. You can lie if you need to. He'll say to the one that's stressed out to the max today, come, try one of my coping mechanisms. I've got, I've got all sorts. I got them in the form of a drink. I got them in the form of a drug. I got them in the form of an image. I got them in the form of a relationship. I got them in the form of a small little plastic card. Whatever you need to feel comfortable right now and to relax and to detach yourself from your stress, just come. That's what Nehemiah's enemies were doing to him. Trying to distract him from the work through allurement. How did he resist? Look at verse 3 and 4. And I sent messengers unto them, saying, I'm doing a great work. So that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease till I leave it and come down to you? Yet they sent unto me four times after this sort, but he persisted in resistance. And I answered them after the same manner. 
Four times he said, I don't got time for you. You know why? I'm doing a great work. Here's how you resist distraction through allurement. By staying focused on your God-given calling. In the same way that Nehemiah stood, we can stand against our enemy when we understand the magnitude of what God has called us to do. I just gave you all kinds of scenarios. I'll repeat them and give you a way to resist. Young person, when, when the enemy tries to distract you with, say, alcohol for the first time, you need to tell him, no, you're called to a life of holiness. You're called by God to a life of purity. You're called by God to a life of sanctification and separation from the world. And you need to tell him, you're doing a great work. I cannot come down. To the lonely person, when the enemy tries to distract you with people who, yes, know how to have fun, but all their fun is detached from a relationship with Jesus Christ, tell them, no, I'm called to walk before God, with God before anyone or anything else. And if I have to do it by myself for a while, I'll do it. I'm called to a good work. I can't come down just because I'm lonely. To the discouraged Christian in here today, when he whispers in your ear, church isn't worth it. You shout back in his face, it is worth it. It's this body of Christ that, 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 that God has called me to. It's in this body I'll grow. It's in this body I'll serve. It's in this body I'll be encouraged. And until then, I'm staying attached to it. I'm doing a good work. I cannot come down. Thank you, Uncle Rick, for the amen. I could use three or four or 500 more. I'm feeling a little lonely up here, Brother Mike. I'll take an amen from the peanut gallery as well. He's a paid staff member. He ought to be amen in the snot out of the back of my head. <laughs> if you're stressed out to the max today, you better believe every Friday night, every Saturday night, the devil's going to have some kind of coping mechanism for you. And when he does, hey, tell him no. I'm called to find my rest and my comfort and my peace in the Holy One, in God Himself, in my relationship with Jesus. You're not getting me to come down from this wall. I'm doing a great work. Even if I'm stressed out, I ain't coming to you. Yeah. Tactic number one is distraction through allurement. Tactic number two, discouragement through slander. Look at verse 5. They're going to try a second approach. Then sent Sanballat his servant unto me in like manner the fifth time. Watch this. With an open letter in his hand. I gazed by that at first until I began to study the passage. And I realized that when they sent a letter back in this day to a government official, they sealed it closed. They sealed it closed because that, that letter would touch many hands. And people are nosy. And they would open it up and read its contents. This was an open letter on purpose. Sam Ballot put some contents in this letter that were not right. And he left it open so that everybody along the way could read it and pass it along to the people closest to them. And they could pass it along to the people closest to them. It's called slander. Well, what, were, what was in the letter? What was the slander? Look at verse 6. Wherein is written... It is reported among the heathen, and Gashmu saith it, that thou and the Jews think to rebel, for which cause thou buildest the wall, that thou mayest be their king according to these words. Look up here. Here's the lie. They're trying to spread slander that Nehemiah wanted to overthrow King Artaxerxes. Now that is a serious act of treason back then. Like he wouldn't just lose his position. He would lose his life for that. 
This wasn't just a little tiny rumor. This was a big time slander meant to discourage and distract Nehemiah from the work God has called him to. I read this last week and I love it. Rumors are carried by haters. Spread by fools. And accepted by idiots. Rumors are carried by haters. Spread by fools. And accepted by idiots. One of the sharpest tools in the devil's toolbox is slander. Comes in the form of gossip and rumor and lies. He wants to discourage you, Christian, by the opinions of others. Welcome to Facebook. Where it's a virtual world full of some hater that starts a rumor. Some fool that spreads it. And a lot of idiots that accept it. Maybe you're not on Facebook. Stay off of it. <laughs> but it goes beyond the, the, the social media world. It's in churches. It's in families. It's in workplaces. It's in our community. The devil loves to discourage us through the opinions of others. But listen to me. You'll never do big things for God if you're constantly discouraged and derailed and distracted by small-minded people. Look how Nehemiah resisted the enemy slander in verse 8. Then I sent unto him, saying, There are no such things done as thou sayest, but thou feignest them or made them up out of thine own heart. For they all made us afraid, saying, Their hands shall be weakened from the work that it be not done. Then he prayed. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. You know how you resist discouragement through slander? By truth and prayer. I want you to notice something, what, what Nehemiah did as a leader. He wasn't a silent lamb. Are you following me? There is a time to say nothing. Like when Jesus was on the cross, he knew there was a time to say nothing. But there's also a time to stand and speak truth. Well, even Solomon says this. We're going to get to it in our Proverbs series. He says this, answer not a fool according to his folly. And you know what the very next verse says? Answer a fool according to his folly. Solomon, what are you talking about? Which one is it? That's why you need wisdom. You need wisdom to know, do I answer not or do I answer? I'm taking for granted that Nehemiah used wisdom in this case. And as a leader, he knew that he needed to speak the truth. But I want you to notice how he did it. He didn't call in the Jerusalem Times and form some kind of press conference to announce it and defend himself publicly. Didn't even go on Twitter. It's a novel idea. He didn't, he didn't even call a break and, and gather his team members around and say, this is what they're saying about me, don't believe it. He spoke his truth directly to the one who slandered him. That's it. And I think that sometimes the reason why we get so discouraged by slander is, we, is because we play right into the devil's hand. We keep fighting back to the wrong people. We say too much. Nehemiah spoke his truth and he was done. The Bible says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. You speak your truth when it's wise to speak your truth and then just be quiet. Let God be the one to, handle, to, to hand out vindication. That's not your job. It's not my job. And then you know what he did? He prayed. 
And did you see his prayer? It wasn't profound. He didn't say, hey, i got to take two days off because people are talking bad about me. I'm going to go wallow in self-pity in my prayer closet. And I'm going to utter these prayers and hopefully all these feelings go away. He just said a short prayer with a shovel in his hand. He said, oh God, strengthen me. Help this slander not to weaken me. Help it to strengthen me. Listen, Christian, if you are living for God, you will face opposition. If you are doing a great work, there will be opposition. And when it comes, don't wallow in self-pity. You take that burden to God, you keep a shovel in your hand, and you you keep pressing forward on what God's called you to do. Small-minded people will sit on their hands and sit behind their keyboards. You pick up a shovel, you say your prayer, and you work for the Lord. That's how you handle discouragement through slander. Truth and prayer. Tactic number three. Disqualification through compromise. Disqualification through compromise. You'd like to think they would just quit because it's not working, but they didn't. Look at verse number 10. Afterward, I came into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mahatabil, who was shut up. Here's what he said. Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. And let us shut the doors of the temple, for they will come to slay thee. Yea, in the night they will come to slay thee. What's that all about? Here's what happened. Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem sent this man named Shemaiah to urgently plead with Nehemiah to hide in the temple because the enemies are coming after him. What was wrong with that? Well, here's what was wrong with that. The only people allowed in the temple are the priests, according to the law of God in the book of Deuteronomy. And Nehemiah knew this. And what they were trying to do was by fear and deception, they knew that they couldn't discourage him. They knew they couldn't distract him. So they, they thought, Nehemiah, the only way he's going to stop is if he's his own worst enemy. And we got to get him to disqualify himself. So we got to send him bad news and hopefully he'll compromise what he knows is right and run into the temple. Because if he did that, there's no way that he would have credibility any longer to lead God's people. Because if you can't follow God's commandments as a leader, you aren't fit to lead God's people. Their effort was to disqualify him by getting him to compromise. And I'm here to tell you that's that's how the enemy works today. Follow this. The enemy is trying to disqualify spiritual leaders in churches by getting them to compromise. Why? Why does, he, why does he target leaders in ministries and works that way? Because they have influence. And if he can get them to make small compromises along the way, it'll catch up with them. And they'll, they'll, they'll disqualify themselves from God's work. And a lot of people will be affected by it. By the way, you can only disqualify somebody who has to qualify. Which means that to be a spiritual leader in the church, there are qualifications for that. They aren't man-made qualifications. There are two biblical offices, we believe, the pastor and the deacon. And there are clear qualifications in Paul's epistles. If you want to be a pastor or you want to be a deacon. And I'm going to go ahead and preach to the staff and the deacons. Because God is out to get us. You hearing me? Pastors are, 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 are given a twofold responsibility in the church to preach, feed the flock, and pray. We do other things, but those are the two main responsibilities. 
And the deacons were formed in Acts, the book of Acts in the early church, because the church grew to a point where the pastors couldn't care for the people appropriately. And so they had to, they had to aid the pastor with deacons for member care. The word deacon itself means servant. Deacons are supposed to serve the people, help the pastor serve the people. And there, are quali- there is a list of qualifications. Look them up. If you want to be a deacon and you want to be a pastor. And the devil is going to try to get us men to make small compromises along the way so that we forfeit our right, our privilege, rather, to, to lead God's people. Because he knows if he can take down the leader, if he can chop off the head, he can get a lot of people that look up to them. That's why I would say two things. Number one, don't put all your hope in man. Don't put all your hope in me. Don't put all your hope in our pastor. Don't put all your hope in one of our deacons, though they're godly and though they're wise, and I myself look to them for counsel, and they help our church in so many ways that this church doesn't even know. Don't look to your staff as God. You look to God and you worship Him. And I'll say to you, like, like Paul said to his church at Philippi, you follow us only after as we follow Christ. The moment we stop following Christ, you stop following us. And twofold, the second thing I would tell you is pray for us. We aren't any more special or loved by God than you are just because God has called us to leadership. We aren't to be held on a special platform. We have special access to God. That's the old covenant. We aren't priests. We're not prophets. You have much access to the throne of God as we do, but God has entrusted us to a, a position of leadership in this body of Christ, and we need your prayer. The devil's after our marriage, the devil's after our purity, the devil's after our testimony. Because he wants to destroy this church from the top down. But it's not just spiritual leaders. Every time you go to work out in the world, the devil wants you to do something. Make a compromise and disqualify your godly testimony. Do you know that? He wants you to participate in the gossip in the break room so you lose credibility. He wants you to get mad at the boss and walk out like a child and forfeit and disqualify your ability to lead them to Christ. He wants to get you to make small compromises in your work every day so that when it comes Easter time and you're going to invite them to Easter, they're going to look at you and say, nah. Are you a phony or what? Not buying into that? Hey, if you're married in here, he wants you to make compromises to disqualify the trust in your relationship. Because the devil knows that a marriage will only be as strong as its trust. And it's the most important ingredient in your relationship. And many's going to get you to look at images on your phone that aren't your wife. Ladies going to get you to flirt with men at work that aren't your husband. And it's just going to be small compromises along the way that are going to, over the course of time, disqualify the trust in your relationship. I don't know about you, when my marriage isn't good, my life's not that good. I fake it, but it's not. As my marriage goes, so goes my life. Because it is the institution, the relationship that God set up for me to be intimate and close to. And if that's fragmented, there are other areas of my life that suffer. That's why the devil will target it. So how did Nehemiah resist it? How did he stand against that kind of pressure? Look at verse number 11. And I said, should such a man as I flee? And who is there that being as I am would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And then he tells him why. 
And lo, I, watch this word, perceived that God had not sent him, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me, for Tobiah and Samballot had hired him. You know how you resist disqualification? By exercising discernment. Exercising discernment. What's discernment? That's perception. The ability, watch, to perceive what's not obvious. It's the ability to see what's not right in front of you. You understand that Satan is crafty. And he can be so subtle at times that the only way you're going to survive his attacks is if you have the discernment to see beyond the surface, beyond the immediate. If you have the ability from God to perceive what's right and wrong when what's right and wrong isn't obvious. How do you get that kind of discernment? Does it magically enter your body? No, it's very simple. Hebrews 5 tells us. Put it up there, Brother Justin. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. For he's a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You don't want to miss this. The writer of Hebrews is describing these Jewish believers as spiritual babies, as infants, because they were living on the milk of the word when they should have been living on the solid meat of the word. And because they were sipping from a spiritual bottle and not eating off of a big boy plate, their spiritual muscles were not being exercised and they were struggling in life with distinguishing between good and evil. And a lot of Christians are the same way. They're not exercising their senses in the Word of God on a daily basis. They're sipping from the bottle every Sunday morning at 1045. If they feel peachy, they'll come back at 630. Sip from the bottle again. If they're dedicated Christians, they'll come back on Wednesday. Sip from the bottle again. But nothing on their own. Nothing at home. No steady diet of the meat of God's word. Therefore, they are giving in to one attack after another. One lie after another. The devil has them. They have no discernment in their dating relationships. They have no discernment in how to respond when people mistreat them. They can't discern what's best for their future or their career. They lack discernment when it comes to parenting or spending money or leadership. And it's all because they're living off a bottle. Listen, the only way that you stand to resist temptation on a consistent basis is if you get into this book every day. Pull up to the table. Get a fork out. Get a knife out. And start eating. I'd hate to see what my son would look like if I only fed him twice a week. And that's what some church members look like. Been here for a year, two years, three years. Still have to look in the index where the books of the Bible are. Not because you're a new Christian, but because you never, you never get in the Word. No familiarity. Still, you don't understand the, the doctrinal teachings of the pastor. Your mind's blown. You, you, can't, you can't fathom, you can't understand the truths of the Word of God. 
Then you go to the work, you go to the workplace, and the devil puts a little fish, a little, a, a little bait on the hook, and you bite it. You get out on driving, you get on Persian behind someone that's going less than 30 miles an hour. That's a bait. And you eat it. And then a family member wrongs you. It's bait. And you take the bait. And then you have a purchase on Amazon. You think it's a good deal. It's bait. Because you know you can't afford it. But you don't have the discernment to tell the difference. And you click purchase. Are you following me? We make life harder than it is because we lack the discernment necessary to, 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 to be able to foresee the difference between evil and good. Hey, get on the Word of God. Feast on the Word of God. Get familiar with the Word of God. Nehemiah stayed focused on his calling because he resisted distraction through alernment, because he stayed focused on his calling, rather. He spoke the truth and he prayed, and that means he resisted discouragement. Through slander. He exercised discernment, so he resisted disqualification through compromise. And I love how verse 15 kind of puts a pretty bow on the end of this story. Put the verse up there. So the wall was finished. Did you hear me? The wall was finished in the 20 and 5th day of the month of Elul in 50 and 2 days. Did you see the hospital that was built in the epic center of the virus in China? Have you seen that? Go, go, go uh, look it up. In six to ten days, these people built a gigantic hospital right there in the epic center of, of, of the virus. What's it called? Carnival or something like that? Corona, thank you. And it starts with a C. Same thing, Carnival, Corona, it's all a virus. You eating the funnel cakes there? They're great while they last, but when you're done eating them, then you feel it. Anyway... <laughs> The devil's distracting me. Six to ten days, they didn't get distracted. They didn't get discouraged. They had a great work and they got it done. And in 52 days, without modern technology or tools, they built the walls and fastened the gates so as to fulfill the greater goal of restoring the worship in Jerusalem. Amazing. Amazing. That is called persistence in resistance. On May 21st, 1981, a boxer by the name of Jim Corbett fought Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson, they say, was the Australian heavyweight champion. They fought to a 61-round draw. <laughs> the next year, Jim Corbett won the world heavyweight title from John Sullivan in the 21st round. Here was Jim Corbett's philosophy, I quote. Fight one more when your feet are so tired you have to shuffle back to the center of the ring, fight one more round. When your arms are so tired that you can hardly lift your hands to come on guard, fight one more round. When your nose is bleeding and your eyes are black and you are so tired you wish your opponent would crack you one on the jaw and put you to sleep, fight one more round. Because the man who always fights one more round is never with. I think God had me come to you today from Nehemiah 6 to tell you to fight one more round. To the Christian who is here today and you're being attacked from every angle, fight one more round. To the young person who's being pulled from every direction to give up your purity, fight one more round. 
To the lonely who are trying to fill apart but just can't seem to get in. Fight one more round. To the discouraged who don't think anyone cares. Fight one more round. To the spiritual leader who's being tempted to compromise. Fight one more round. To the spouse who thinks it'll never get better. Fight one more round. To the parent who's at their wits end and doesn't know what to do to get the heart of their child and correct their behavior. Fight one more round. To the grieving who don't feel like they can handle one more loss in their life. Fight one more round. Because there's coming a day. There's coming a day when we get to put the boxing gloves down. And we get to step out of the ring. And I read the last round. And our enemy loses. We don't even have to fight. Our trainer fights for us. And one day the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will come back and he won't be a lamb anymore. He'll come back as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he and his army will assemble and they will, they will send Satan to his doom for all of eternity, which is the lake of fire. And we will be ushered into the new heaven and the new earth where there is no more fighting, no more dying, no more crying, no more suffering, no more punches to throw, no more punches to dodge, no more battles. But until then, persist as you resist. And fight one more round. Stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed. God help us.